The Fanny Mechanic Show with Dr. Tash, where we dive in, go deep, and open up about women's health. Hello and welcome everyone to this week's episode of The Fanny Mechanic Show. I am your host, Dr. Natasha Andriatis, aka Dr. Tash, and this episode is proudly brought to you by City Fertility, global leaders in fertility and IVF. This week, we dive into the topic of hypnotherapy. We go deep with hypnotherapist Louise Jeffrey. Louise opens up about how hypnosis can help manage a variety of issues from compulsive behaviours to infertility. Louise Jeffrey is a hypnotherapist, acupuncturist, speaker and coach. She supports women in letting go of their limitations so that they can reach their true potential. Louise offers one-to-one sessions, group coaching programs and speaks regularly at events and on community radio. She lives in Sydney with her husband, three boys, and two Cocker Spaniels. She's passionate about empowering women to create sustainable change so that they can become the best version of themselves. In this episode, I asked Louise, what is hypnotherapy? What is the history of hypnotherapy? How does one train to become a hypnotherapist? What happens during a hypnotherapy session? Are there any contraindications to hypnotherapy? What makes someone more hypnotizable than others? How many sessions do you need to notice any impact? How can it help in managing anxiety, depression, binge eating, alcohol addiction, smoking, and infertility? I hope you enjoy our chat. Louise Jeffrey. Hypnotherapist, acupuncturist, speaker, and coach. Welcome to the show. Hi. (laughs) Now, today we're primarily going to be talking about hypnotherapy, but before we launch into that, can you tell us about the fearless feminine sisterhood? Mm. So, this was a group uh, that I set up a couple of years ago, in fact, um, on Facebook. And it's really for women uh, to come together and to connect and to um, to share. It's a safe space for women to kind of come and learn um, about how to uh, to identify and and uh, and release their limitations so that they can actually reach their true potential. But it's it's really a space for women who are ready for change to come and connect with other women um, and um, and to learn and to grow. Do you find that women suffer a lot from the imposter syndrome? I do actually. Mm. Um, I think it's it's something that that's kind of across the board in terms of gender, but it comes up a lot in therapy that that women feel like uh, you know very often when they're when they they're, they're working in a particular role, for example, uh, that they won't share um, that they're they're kind of they feel like an imposter, right? They feel like who am I to actually be doing this role, and who am I to be to be doing what I'm doing. And I, I know this from personal experience. I um I have suffered from it myself in the past. And it's something that um that we have to kind of really understand a little bit better and know that it's that it's not we're not alone in in in, in imposter syndrome, right? It's something that affects most humans across the board. Mm. But women yeah. more so than men, is that correct? Um look I, I work mainly with women and it comes up so much. Um, I would say that that it, it is definitely something that's experienced by men, but I think that um, you know that that in our society, women are not always as um, 
as they haven't always had the opportunity to speak their truth as much and to to kind of um you know to, to go out there and to have a voice and i think sometimes they they will often shy away from their true potential so yes perhaps in women it is it is something that's more more prevalent and in your work what came first the hypnotherapy or the acupuncture the acupuncture came first um I actually went traveling with my my partner, it's now my husband, um, you know, sort of 15, 18 years ago. And it was in that couple of years away that I that I had a lot of introspection time and decided that I wanted to change from a corporate career into something that I felt was more meaningful and make a difference. Um, and I went and studied acupuncture and did a, um, a you know, a Bachelor of Science in, in acupuncture in London. And then what happened was, is that I was working uh, in fertility acupuncture mainly. And what I found was that I really wasn't very well equipped to deal with uh, the women and some men who were coming to see me. I wasn't very well equipped to deal with, um, you know, how fragile they were in the space, especially around IVF and fertility issues. And so I then went on to study strategic psychotherapy and clinical hypnotherapy. And that's kind of how the hypnotherapy came about. Um, and then it's just really evolved from there. Wow. All right, let's dive in into, into hypnotherapy. So can you tell our audience what is hypnotherapy? Okay. So hypnosis or hypnotherapy, and these are kind of interchangeable terms, um, is where we use guided relaxation, uh, intense concentration, and what we call focused attention to achieve um, really a heightened state of awareness that is sometimes called a trance. You've probably heard it called a trance. And this is really where the person's attention is, is so focused that whilst they're actually in the state, anything that goes on around them is temporarily blocked out or ignored. And so what that allows us to do is it, it allows their imagination and their unconscious to be more open to suggestion. So, you know, everyone who comes to see a hypnotherapist is really looking for, for change in some way. And so the purpose of hypnotherapy is really to help the recipient gain, uh, you know, either a shift in perspective, in other words, to see things differently, um, but it's really to help them to to change so that they can start thinking and acting differently, right? It's really where we're working with the unconscious mind. So when you're in a state of trance, not only are you super focused on what's being said to you or what you're experiencing at the time, but your unconscious mind is more susceptible to suggestion. So, you know, whether we know it or not, it's almost always our unconscious mind that really holds us back from achieving what it is that we want in life. So whether it's to be healthier or slimmer or fitter or lighter or wealthier or whatever it is to start a family, it doesn't actually matter. Many of us, in fact, most of us are really unconsciously blocking ourselves from getting what it is that we want. Otherwise, we'd have it right. And that's where hypnotherapy comes in. It's the hypnotherapist's job to help the patient or the person who's come to see them to um, to relax enough to go into a state of trance so that we can access the unconscious mind and help them to gain a shift in perspective and help them to create change. Does that make sense? So how do you go about training to become a hypnotherapist? So... Essentially, there's formal training that you have to go through. And in Australia, for example, there's various different schools um, of hypnotherapy that, that you can go to. 
Um, and what this generally includes is about 100 hours of face-to-face -face hypnotherapy skills and then around 30 hours of face-to-face of -face counseling skills training. Um, and there's actually no prior qualifications needed, certainly not at the moment, to study hypnotherapy. But what actually happens is that many counselors and therapists um, go on to study hypnotherapy and actually use it as a complementary practice, you know, in their clinic. Hmm. I can see how that yeah. would work. Mm. And so yeah. what's the history of hypnotherapy? Where did it stem from? I'm, I'm, I know the word is Greek, but yes. um, can you tell us more about how it, it evolved? So, you know, hypnotherapy is, is generally considered a more kind of new age treatment, but, you know, and it's, and it's generally considered, you know, something that's, that's, that's used to help people with a variety of medical and emotional conditions. But the truth actually is, is that the practice of hypnosis has actually been around for, you know, for many years, for thousands of years. Um, ancient Hindus, for example, would induce something that they call temple sleep, which was kind of like a type of self-induced hypnosis, which is, is it was something that was brought on by meditation. Um, and it was used to heal various, you know, ailments. Now, hypnosis was, was actually also associated historically with, um, with prayer in some religions. Um, and it was used as part of spiritual ceremonies, um, you know, in countries such as Austria and Ireland. And what happened then was that it, it gave hypnosis a sort of supernatural mystery. But by the late kind of 1700s or early 1800s, hypnotherapy had actually moved more into, into a more kind of scientific realm. And it was around this time that there was um, a priest actually named um, Abba Faria, who created quite a stir when he publicly demonstrated um, how you could alter someone's state of mind using induction, which is where we put people into a state of trance, um, and obviously the subject's permission. Now, it wasn't really until the early 1800s, um, and kind of just after this particular time, when hypnotherapy started to become more well-known, that physicians started successfully using the principles of hypnotherapy or, or hypnotism um, actually as a viable form of anesthesia for surgeries. So they started using it um, to, to help people to get through surgeries with, you know, before they had um, the regular use of you know, anesthetics and things like that. But at that stage, scientists were still skeptical because there was quite a bit of confusion as to you know, how hypnosis worked. It was quite a, a kind of mystical concept. Um, and it was, it wasn't until the practice moved into more of a medical phenomenon, um, and this was really where it was starting to be embraced by psychology, that it actually gained acceptance. Um, and this is when it started to get used for mental health conditions, and it started being called hypnotherapy. So it was really by the late 1800s that hypnotherapy was starting to be used by scientists who were studying the human mind, like Sigmund Freud, for example. Um, and then it became recognized as a valid, a valid um medical therapy around 1955, I think, in Great Britain. Um, and then in the U.S. was around 1958 or the, the late 50s, I think. Um, that was when they started to use it as a valid medical therapy. But today, you know, as I say, we use hypnotherapy to treat, you know, mental health disorders such as depression, anxiety, addictions, PTSD, um, you know, um, various different things. And, and many countries actually regulate hypnotherapy now in the same way that they do other types of psychotherapy. 
Um, and it's it's now widely accepted as as therapeutically effective. And are there um, are there some people that are more hypnotizable than others? And how do you test for that? So um, this is a that's a really interesting one because it's not. Well, there definitely are people that are more, um, you know, more susceptible to to hypnotherapy, and um, and they tend to be those sorts of people that are um, are the daydreaming type, for example. So, what we know is that people who often will get lost in in a book or a movie, for example, who find it easy to do that, or who often lose track of time, they definitely tend to be more susceptible to hypnosis and what we know about the general population is that around five to ten percent of people are in this kind of category um where they're the kind of people that if if you're doing stage hypnosis for example which is very different to hypnotherapy and i'll tell you about that in a moment but um you know are they the kind of people that would be targeted in stage hypnosis because they just you know they're very susceptible to to hypnosis so that's really around five to ten percent of of people then you've got kind of around 60 to 75 percent of people of the population are what we call moderately susceptible, and and then you've got around another 25 to 30 percent which are, are are more minimally susceptible, and that really means that they don't get hypnotized easily. But the good news is is that generally, you know, anybody can can reach a you know a, can can get induced into a state of trance. It's just more difficult for some people than it is for others, right? Um, I mean, that's why children and young adults, for example, are generally good candidates for hypnosis because they're so open to suggestion and they have quite active imaginations, right? But even if you're not and you don't fall into that 5 to 10% group, hypnosis can still help you because that's the hypnotherapist's job, right, is to induce a state of trance and to teach you how to do it on your own. Um, well, for me, it's to teach you how to do it on your own so that you can start to create change and be empowered. Um, yeah, that, you mentioned earlier the altered state of mind. I remember having a discussion once with someone about hypnotherapy and their concern was that they didn't want their mind to be altered by somebody else. What would you mm. say to that? Mm. Well, this is the thing about hypnotherapy. We have this preconceived idea um, and, and it's, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of understandable. You can see why that when you look at what happens with stage hypnosis where People get taken up onto a stage, and 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 this is, as I said, this is around five to ten percent of people that can be easily hypnotized. Um, it 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 looks and it seems as if those people are absolutely under the spell of the therapist, right? And so we have this idea that when you go for hypnotherapy, that you're going into an altered state of consciousness where the hypnotherapist is in control and they can say anything that they want to you, and you're going to take them on board. That's actually not the case. When you go into a clinical hypnotherapy session, for example, what happens is, is that obviously the first part of the session is where we, we sit and talk about, um, you know, your case history and and uh, what you've come, you know, to seek help for, et cetera, et cetera. But it's really um, a matter of, you know, getting uh, consent and permission for you to go into a deep state of relaxation, into a state of focused attention. The great thing is, is that you need to understand that at any stage, you can come out of that state of trance. You can lift your arm, even though your body may feel heavy and you may feel deeply relaxed, 
whilst your mind is still clear and very, very focused, your body is deeply relaxed and feels very heavy, you can still come out of that state of trance if you choose to. And you only take on board that which resonates with you and you leave behind that which does not. So we want to move away from this kind of perception that you're going into an altered state of consciousness over which you have no control. That's not the case at all, right? Mm. You're going to take on board that. I mean, I can't force anybody to have a shift in perspective. People who come to to see a hypnotherapist are generally coming because they want change, um, but they don't need to be frightened. So we want to reassure people that you don't need to be frightened. That we're not going to do anything that's out of your control. You know, you can still come out of that state of trance at any time. State of trance. Does that make sense? Yep. I've had hypnotherapy mm. a couple of times for a couple of different things, and uh, mm. yeah, it was very much like that. The as you're going along, I, I recall being asked for permission along the way, and mm. uh, yeah, uh, what I saw these practitioners for it really helped me. Um, Good. But are there any contraindications to hypnotherapy? Are there people that should not have hypnotherapy? Yes, there are. Um, look, the great thing about hypnotherapy is that if it's practiced by a registered practitioner, by somebody who's trained, it's 100% safe. But it's not appropriate for people with severe mental illness, right? So um, particularly psychosis, so things like organic psychiatric conditions or antisocial personality disorder or borderline personality disorder, those sorts of things um, are not uh, appropriate. Um, you know, those sorts of conditions are not appropriate for, for hypnotherapy. But as far as adverse reactions go, um, you know, they're rare. I've never experienced any adverse reactions at all, but, um, you know, in my years of, of, of practicing hypnotherapy, but um, I have heard of some, but they, they're mild. They tend to be things like dizziness and or headache, um, you know, things like that. But um, it's really only people who, who have severe mental illness that are, that are really not suited to hypnotherapy. And um, you manage uh, anxiety, depression, binge eating, alcohol addiction, smoking, and yes. infertility, is that right, with hypnotherapy? Yes. Now, if we go through each of those, so if we go through, well, which one do you actually work with the most? What do you see the most out of all of those things? And are there other things that I haven't mentioned on that list that you see? Well, I mean, I see a mix of all of those, but what we tend to find is that people who come in with all those things always have underlying anxiety, right? Anxiety tends to be the thing that, for example, drives binge eating or alcohol addiction or smoking, not, not necessarily infertility. That's a separate one we kind of put on its own, and I'll talk about that in a moment. Um, and depression also, you know, separate to that. But when we, I see a lot of people for compulsive behavior, so things like, you know, binge eating, alcohol addiction, smoking, um, and and understanding that is, is, you know, that's always comorbid with anxiety. So we're, we're always treating the underlying anxiety alongside the, the compulsive behavior. Um, infertility uh, is really one where we are mainly looking at, obviously the, the person who's going through fertility treatment is being supported generally if they're on a fertility journey, either through IVF by medical practitioners or 
um, they may just be working with their GP um, or maybe they, they're just trying to fall pregnant. Naturally, they're generally trying to do whatever they can to, to help themselves on a physical level. We're looking to see if there's anything unconscious that we should be addressing that might be emotionally blocking them from falling pregnant. Um, or perhaps it's that their stress levels are incredibly high. We need to help them to deal with the anxiety that's helping their uh, success in falling pregnant, if that makes sense. So, um, so I mean, this is the part that I love talking about. And if you want to, I'll talk a little bit more about how how we can help in managing these things. Would that would that be helpful? Yes, please. Mm, okay. So to understand how hypnotherapy can can help us, um, we actually need to talk about the unconscious mind, right, and how it works. So we've all got two parts to our brain. One is the conscious mind, which is really responsible for you know, our logical and rational thought and our decision making. And this part's housed in the, in the prefrontal cortex. And then we've got the unconscious mind, the unconscious part of us that takes care of us without us having to think about it. So it allows us to, to breathe without consciously thinking about it or to feel hunger or tiredness without having to think about it. But what it also does is it does whatever it can to keep us safe. Um, and this is really important to understand the conscious mind because throughout our lives, but particularly when we're young and more impressionable, we have experiences, some of which are good and some of which are not so good. And we're going to focus on the, the not so good ones for now. When we have an experience um, that, is, that is either traumatic or, or, or unwanted or perceived to be traumatic or unwanted, there's an emotional charge attached to it. Um, and that emotion is really what embeds that memory into our unconscious and into our body's cells. Now, the conscious mind's main aim really is to keep us safe, right? to keep us alive and to keep us safe. So I'll give you an example. As a, as a child, for example, if you put your hand on a hot stove plate um, and you burnt yourself, the unconscious part of you is going to recognize that it needs to build a mini program that says, you know, you mustn't put your hand on a hot plate or you're going to get hurt. Now, you don't have to consciously think about that thought every single time you come near a hot plate. It comes automatic, right? Your unconscious actually does it for you because its main job is to keep you safe. Now, the reason I'm telling you this is because our unconscious mind often thinks that it's keeping us safe in our limiting beliefs when actually what's happening is that that's not what we consciously want for ourselves in our lives. So in the example of um, somebody who has a fear of public speaking, for example, um, they might come because they have to look, you know, I've got this sober about public speaking. Um, I, you know, when I was a young girl, I was uh, in primary school and I was speaking, uh, you know, in front of the class. And, uh, you know, I was feeling a little bit nervous and I mumbled a bit and then somebody laughed in the class and then everybody laughed and I felt this kind of deep shame. And she might not have remembered that, but what happens is, is that the unconscious mind takes that negative memory and that experience and it creates a belief that public speaking is frightening and it should be avoided at all costs. And what happens is, is that the unconscious mind will do whatever it takes to keep us living out that belief system because more than anything, it wants to keep us safe and it wants certainty. So what happens is, is it starts to put our efforts towards our goals, for example, right? It might send negative thoughts into our conscious awareness. Um, uh, like, for example, you know, you're just not good at public speaking, so you'll never progress in your career. So what happens is, is that as that woman grows into adulthood, 
she's finding that she's really getting held back in her career. She finds that she's, you know, she's really getting more and more underconfident. She's got a deep fear of failure. And so what we need to do with hypnotherapy is to address the limiting beliefs to, to, to really look at the unconscious mind and find out what's actually happening underneath. And that's what we do in our initial session of hypnotherapy, right? We spend a lot of time exploring through a series of questions what your second belief system is and where and how those beliefs might be holding you back from getting what you want. So it might be in the, ex in the example of, of infertility that, in fact, uh, a woman might say, you know, once I examine it and I really go deep into to this subject, I find that I'm actually really frightened of, of having a child. I'm frightened that I might not be a good parent. Or, um, you know, and so every time she thinks of having a child or she takes action towards that, it's creating fear and anxiety in the body. And we know that stress can obviously impede mm. fertility. So does that make sense? It's interesting because I um, I have a question that I give all of my patients. One of the questions I ask them is, do you have any fears around parenthood? And mm. a lot of them put down, yeah, I have a fear of not being a good mum or um, uh, putting the issues that I have onto my child or not having mm. enough money. There is wow. a lot of that um, that I see come up. And, um, oh, wow. Yeah, I, I, it's a very interesting thing to know. It's a beautiful note. question to ask and I'm sure it's, it kind of it unravels quite a lot. Yeah. Well, my question is if, if I do see someone who responds and actually writes an answer to that question because not everyone writes an answer to that question. Some people write Neil, but invariably I say that most women and men because I ask the men that as well mm. um, uh, do bring up something. So then, you know, should I be referring them to you, Louise, for some hypnotherapy? Because I, I, I do believe in the block, in that there's mm. something mentally block, blocking them. And, mm. and you know, mm. that, there is that fear and, you know, uh, does, it, does it impact on them wanting to have intercourse or, you know, or mm. that, 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 that energy that then gets transferred to that sperm that ovulates to that egg or, you know, that fertilizes Absolutely. that egg. And, and, you know, in, in modern science we can't always explain these things. But I think deep down, mm -hmm. this whole thing around fear is huge Definitely. and not addressed. Um, no, absolutely. I mean, mm. you're, you're so right. And, and my answer to your question is yes. You know, whether it's me or somebody else, if somebody is is aware enough to answer that question, then they're, they're I almost have this kind of visual image of them being somebody who's right on the right on the cliff and ready to jump in terms of exploring more deeply what it is that might be blocking. And I'll give you a, a beautiful example of the, the power of the mind when it comes to fertility. Um, I have a, a, a patient who years ago, um, you know, went through uh, lots of different therapies, not actually with, with, with me at that point, but um, she tried IVF and, and she was it was inexplained infertility for about seven years. Um, and, and there was nothing that, you know, she just couldn't fall pregnant. And it was actually when she then decided to adopt uh, and um, she was living in South Africa at the time, decided to adopt, and they found, um, you know, a, a mother who was a young mother who was ready to, um, to, she was having twins, and so they went through meeting the mum, and obviously when, as soon as these, these two little boys were born, they were going to be, um, you know, handed over to the adoptive parents. Um, and right before the mum was about to give birth, uh, her and her husband decided to go on a, um, you know, on their own little baby moon and just have a have a little holiday. And, uh, and 
she was on that holiday, she found out she was pregnant mm. um, naturally, and she was pregnant with twins, and she ended up having twin boys. With exactly. Twins as well. <laughs> exactly those. Tw- she ended up with twin boys, just like those twin boys she was going to mm. get. And unfortunately, she had to decide not to, right at the last minute, not to, um, not to take on those other two boys um, because she had her own two boys. Wow. But, you That's know, amazing. it just goes to show the, the, the power of the mind. Mm. So, you know, we can we can really be blocked. Our mind is incredibly powerful, and the mind-body connection is so powerful. And it's not absolutely everything, but it is a very big part for a lot of people in in terms of creating what they want in their life. If they can, if there is anything blocking them underneath, and and they can release that, um, it can be so helpful. Mm. And how about um, oh, smoking? How does hypnotherapy work for smoking? Because I know it's quite a good thing for smoking. Success rates for that are quite good as a, as compared, and this is what I hear, and please correct me if I'm wrong, mm. weight loss is more difficult to manage yes. with hypnotherapy. Yes. Okay, well, this is, this is a really, really interesting one. Um, smoking uh, is a compulsive behavior, as you know, um, as is overeating. So we'll, we'll kind of put it in, in and we'll almost compare, you know, weight loss and, and, and we'll, put, we'll, we'll assume that weight loss is generally caused by overeating for the most part. Um, sorry, weight gain. Uh, when you look at smoking in, in isolation as a compulsive behavior, in my experience with hypnotherapy, we can go in and we can do a couple of sessions with smoking and most of the time we can get a result. But what tends to happen and this is what the research shows us as well, is that we can stop someone from smoking by using um, hypnotic suggestion uh, to stop them from from smoking. Uh, But what happens is is that that compulsive behavior is there for a reason. It's fulfilling a need, right, within compulsive behavior is always, there's a reason for it. Um, If we don't go for the underlying cause of why people are smoking in the first place might be to relieve anxiety, um, might be to live out a limiting belief, for example. If we just stop them with smoking, they will almost always come back to you and say, well, now that I've stopped smoking, I've started eating, mm. right? Or I've started drinking more alcohol or mm. whatever, because something I have to find the other functional defense against whatever it is that I'm trying to, to do here. So, I, I studied eating psychology um, and utilize that a lot in the coaching and, and, and the hypnotherapy that, that I do in practice. But, you know, having, having spent a lot of time researching and studying emotional eating, it's the same with emotional eating. If we go after emotional eating and hypnotherapy, it's going to come up in, in something else. So we have to go after the root cause of the compulsive behavior, right? We have to really have a look at what's kind of lying underneath. And every single behavior, we, we never, Nobody in, 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 as a human, um, you know, enters behavior without there being a reason behind it, right? Whether it's, whether it's conscious or unconscious, um, there's always a reason. So, um, so hypnotherapy is in, incredibly helpful for people who, uh, who are trying to give up smoking, mainly because they can go and they can have a couple of sessions and it takes it away. But for most of them, they might find that it goes to something else. And if that does happen, then they really need to, to address the root cause and go back to the therapist and say, can we then look at what's actually going on underneath? Yeah, does it make sense? Um, and with weight loss, we, we always go straight to the, we kind of unravel things right from the beginning. We take a bit of a deeper dive. 
So how many sessions do people need when they sign up with you? Um, do you say you might need one to ten sessions or how, how, do you, how do you know what to say to them? Mm. So, well, hypnotherapy is, is, is really um, is short-term therapy rather than long-term therapy. Uh, and it is generally, in my experience, you know, you can go to some hypnotherapists who say you only need one hour and a half session and you're done. Um, in my experience, that might put a Band-Aid and that sometimes works. Um, but very often we have a couple of things that we need to chase. Uh, so I always start with saying to people, we're generally going to work with three to four sessions. Our first session is always almost 100% taken up with a full case history with really understanding through a series of questions exactly what's going on and a, and a full discussion around empowering the patient and getting them to understand what's happening and give them conscious awareness. And then sessions two and three or two, three and four are part discussion and then part hypnotherapy. And then I always give them a recording to take away so that they can listen to that session again. Um, so that we're really reinforcing that session and I get them to listen to it three to four times again afterwards during the course of the week or two weeks before I see them again. So the average is around three to four sessions. Sometimes people get great results and they go, I'd love to then work on another thing. And so we move on and we might move on to eight sessions. Um, and then very occasionally some people get such great results in one to two sessions that they're done, but the average is probably around three to four. Um, and if you, you know, most of the colleagues that I've spoken to, it's probably around the same. Mm. Yeah, my experience with the, the the hypnotherapy that I've done, it was about four sessions each time, I think. Mm. And mm. Um, you mentioned uh, group sessions. Yes. So how does that work compared to one-on-one -on -one sessions? Okay. So in the group sessions, what we're generally doing is we're taking – what we do in the one-to-ones and we are going through quite a structured process. So for example, um, in the group sessions that I run, they generally run, um, it's normally around a six to 12 month program. So it's fairly long and it's done online. But what we do is we get a group of women together, normally in a space of around eight to 10 women at a time. And they're generally there for the same reasons. So they, they want to create change. They want to let go of their limitations. They want to let go of what's holding them back. And they, they, they go through a series of, um, a series of, uh, lessons. So online lessons where they, they're learning. Um, they're learning concepts. They're learning theories. They're learning ideas. They're learning strategies and tools. And they're also then going and they're taking those and they're putting them into practice. So we, I'm teaching people self-hypnosis and teaching them what I call active meditation, which is where we, we take what we learn and we use kind of a very structured process and use it within a meditation format. Um, and essentially it's a form of self-hypnosis. And what I love about the group sessions is that they are Number one, it's a, it's a way better use of my time in terms of making a bigger impact and helping more people. Number two, it's, um, it's far more cost effective for the person who's receiving it, right? So, um, you know, they, one to one sessions may be cost prohibitive for some people if you're going for eight sessions. Um, but it's, it's really, you know, the, the group of them that kind of come together, they also learn very much from each other. They build a great community of women on the same journey as them. And that tends to take on a life of its own as well. So it's very much around what women do best, which is community and connection. Um, but it's a it's an environment where you know we foster learning and um, 
and we're really helping women to reach their true potential. So, you know, if you had one woman in the group who is interested in hypnotherapy for depression, another for, I don't know, Mm. um, compulsive shopping, another woman for infertility, can they all be Mm. part of the same group or do you run different groups for different issues? No, they're all part of the same group. Um, I used to run, I used to do specifically groups around fertility and then around eating, so weight and eating. But what I found was is that the principles are the same. So, um, you know, the, the, the foundational principles in terms of learning around how the unconscious mind works, um, you know, how to start using self-hypnosis, the tools and everything is, is the same. What happens is that also within those group sessions get some individual attention from me. So there's also um, lots of, it's not just learning and, and, and self-directed learning in terms of the lessons, the online lessons, but you also get access to the two Q&A calls a week. So you bring, you know, every week there's, or every session there's there's homework or there's, um, there's stuff that you need to go and implement in terms of your own daily life and actions. Uh, and then you bring your learnings or you bring your questions or you bring your challenges to the group Q&A calls, and sometimes there's the opportunity for one-to-ones as well. Um, but you, you, you kind of bring and you, you, you bring your own learnings and you bring your own stuff and you learn through those Q&As and through those coaching calls. And how do people find out about your course online? Where do they go for that? To my website, so to uh, com, And on there, there's different tabs which show the different programs that I offer but one of the best ways to get to know and understand um, how I work and the work that we do um, is there's uh, an online challenge that I run out of Zealous Feminine Sisterhood that I was talking about right in the beginning. And that is um, every six to eight weeks, I run an online challenge in that group and it's called the Break Free Bootcamp. And it's a five-day free challenge where there's a, a, a around a 45 minutes per day lesson or live session where there's kind of teachings and then there's a very small amount of, of homework to do in terms of self-reflection. Uh, and what we do in that week is that we help women to identify if there are any limiting beliefs that are holding them back. Um, and it's a really, really beautiful week because it can be incredibly revealing, um, incredibly um beautiful in terms of the aha moments that that women get during the course of that week and then they also get to experience you know is this the kind of thing that i really want to do um you know am i ready to to do what it takes to 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 create the change do i want to use self-hypnosis as a form of um you know a form of 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 therapy um so yeah so that's really how those how those how the boot camp works and how it then feeds obviously into the into the group programs so does hypnotherapy work for most people? Hypnotherapy works for most people. Yeah, I mean, across the, the research shows um, there's, there's been different research done in different um, forms of hypnotherapy and different schools of hypnotherapy. Um, but, you know, you could probably take a, a, a kind of ballpark and say that around 60 to 70% of people will see some form of change with hypnotherapy. That's pretty powerful. Mm, it is. And was Rasputin a hypnotherapist? That I don't know. Yeah, for I some reason know. he just came into my mind right now. I don't know why. Maybe I'll have mm. to uh, Google that one. But, yeah, I remember he had those <laughs> eyes, know. those Rasputin eyes. Yes. 
yeah. I know which it's, I've got an image in my mind. Yeah, now, I um, don't know. Mm. You have an image of him? I did, just as you said that, an image came to mm. mind. Yeah. And do you, are there any famous hypnotherapists? It was, was um, Carl Jung one? He utilised hypnotherapy as well. Um, it's more, you know, Ericksonian hypnotherapy that um, that I was taught with um, with with clinical hypnotherapy, um, and he, it was back in uh, back in the the nineteen sixties that um, that Erickson was around, and um, and and he was he was a very prominent you know American psychiatrist and psychologist, and he was probably uh, the one who kind of brought it to. Um, to to the to the forefront of psychology, if you like, um, Milton Erickson. So he's really the one that that um, that that is the most prominent, certainly for me. In terms of stage hypnosis, I mean, there's um, or, or people who use hypnotherapy in today's um, uh, you know in a in a kind of one to many format. Uh, Paul McKenna is one of them. He's he's from the UK. Um, you know that you can go and have a look at some of his stuff, and he does some very, very good work, and it's it, it's very widely publicised. Um, you know, whereas Milton Erickson, who was around in the, the 1960s, is more kind of um, you know for the therapist to really to really study. Um, yeah, there, there there are lots of different you know hypnotherapists to kind of go and have a look at um, uh, and see you know how things work. It's I think it's a it's a, it's a beautiful art, and I'm I'm forever learning. About hypnotherapy, I'm forever. I'm one of those people who's a an eternal seeker. I think I'm always studying, always trying to add new tools to the toolbox, and um, you know, learn different ways of doing things. So I love you know watching different things and, and learning different things. Speaking of watching, have they done any functional MRI tests on people who are having hypnosis? Um, there have been. Uh, you know, who's someone who's really uh, done some really amazing work is um, Dr. Joe Dispenza, mm, uh, yes. and he's a him, yep. he's a you know him yeah. So mm. he's he's done some amazing work and continues to do amazing work, and that's really more self hypnosis. So that's where getting people into putting themselves into trance and into a deeply meditative state. And what what those amazing studies show that show the changes in the brain that happen especially when people go into that uh that 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 kind of bliss state that you get where you where you're in a in a very heightened state of conscious awareness um people who who can take themselves there they, they've practiced for quite some time um yeah they, they they've they're constantly doing um you know doing more and more studies but it's amazing to see the changes in in the brain it's fascinating Absolutely fascinating. Mm. How about uh, hypnotherapy for irritable bowel syndrome? Well, yes. I mean, hypnotherapy, if you think about what irritable bowel is, uh, you know, essentially it's it's where the the bowel is irritated by stress um, and by uh, a hyper, um, a hyper um, high, you know, where the, where the central nervous system is kind of in, in a stress response. So if we can help um, – Help the, the the patient to to calm their central nervous system, to deal with their stress, to reduce their anxiety. Then absolutely, it can help with irritable bowel syndrome. Um, I've had a couple of people who've had great results with that. 
And you mentioned earlier hypnotherapy for post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm. Is, is that something you see a lot of? I don't um, and haven't um, treated much of that. It just hasn't um, come my way. It has often come as a kind of secondary thing. So people will come for anxiety, for example, and then we'll talk about their, their PTSD. There are hypnotherapists who deal specifically with PTSD. Um, I'm not certainly one of them. I don't claim to be somebody who, who goes and, you know, the, the, some of the, the psychologists and psychiatrists actually and hypnotherapists use um, uh, FT tapping, so emotional freedom techniques, um, and various different forms of, um, of self-hypnosis for PTSD um, and use hypnotherapy for that. But, but I, I work, you know, I, I work less with PTSD specifically itself, um, you know, in my practice. Mm. Yeah. But it is, it's, it's incredibly helpful apparently, you know. Yeah. It's good to know because it's, it's a bit like any, any, uh, practitioner usually specializes in one or a couple of things. And so maybe if people were to contact a hypnotherapist, they should perhaps ask them, do you specialize in fertility or, uh, PTSD? Yeah. So that's a good thing to know. Absolutely. Because, you know, if they're a specialist in that particular field, they're going to understand it deeply and they're going to understand exactly what the triggers are, what the mechanisms are, what generally tends to happen with the unconscious mind in certain patterns of behavior. So, um, you know, we, we can't necessarily call ourselves specialists, but we, but, you know, you, you'll have an area of expertise or you'll have an area of focus or passion or, um, you know, of interest. And of all the um, issues that you see, what's your favorite issue mm. to deal with in, in hypnotherapy? My favorite issue uh, there's probably two. I, I love the fertility side um, of my practice because the acupuncture ties in so beautifully with that. I was just going to ask I, you, do you use the acupuncture with that? Yes, I do with mm. hypnotherapy. I love the acupuncture because it's, um, it's, it's a beautiful tool to help people to relax uh, and to de-stress. It really sedates the central nervous system um, and reduces cortisol. So, what women will often report is, you know, straight away once needles are in after five or ten minutes, they're really feeling a lot more relaxed physically and it helps to calm their mind. And if their mind is calm, it's a lot easier for them to go into a state of trance. So I feel very blessed to have acupuncture in my toolbox. It's just such a, a beautiful thing to use. Um, and it's something that we, you know, I started off using acupuncture as by itself and then now I use it alongside hypnotherapy which is which is great but I also love um, working with compulsive behavior mm. um, yeah so you know smoking binge eating overeating um, in fact you know anything where people you know self-sabotage behavior where people feel like they want they consciously know they want something but something else is holding them back it's almost like this push-pull thing going on right mm. um, so that's that's what I think I've been through my own journey with that. Um, and, and it was through my study of hypnotherapy and eating psychology that it brought me to, um, to have personal experience. And, and through that, I have my own kind of love and passion for it. So, Yeah, the fertility with the uh, hypnotherapy and the acupuncture, that, that would be amazing. That, that mm. was, yeah, good on you for having mm. all of that up your sleeve. 
Mm. Well, as I say, I'm an eternal seeker and studier, I think. Mm. <laughs> so what's next for you then? What's next? Um, well, I, you know, my, my, my passion in life is to, is to help women to reach their, their true potential, whether that's, you know, to start a family or to, um, to, to lose weight and be the best they can be or to, to have a, a better career and they're kind of being held back. I, I, the reason I started doing groups is because I wanted to make a bigger impact. I wanted to reach more people. But at the same time, I wanted not to burn out myself because, as you will know, Tash, that um, working as, um, you know, working as a therapist, working in the kind of healthcare space, you really have to watch your own self-care as well. And I find that, that working in a one-to-many space, I can make a bigger impact. I can reach more people. Um, but it's less, you know, it's less taxing on me. So I do love some of the one-to-one because I love the, the face-to-face contact, but I also love, you know, working in the bigger groups. For me, I'm really just kind of working on my, um, working on growing my 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 group program and um, and at the same time still maintaining my my practice um, and and helping women. Yeah, that's that's really me. And where can people see you physically? Because obviously you do a lot of online, but yes. if someone was interested in seeing you physically, where, where does that happen? I'm on the Upper North Shore in Sydney. Okay, great. Yes. And yeah. uh, how about your biggest inspirations? Have you had any big inspirations in your life so far? Yes, I have. Probably, probably the top one is Nelson Mandela, actually. And I know that that seems, you know, like a um, a pretty obvious one for many. But for me, I think because I'm South African, there is, and, and, and I grew up during apartheid, um, went through, and in my 20s, you know, we went through the release of Mandela from prison, um, you know, the, free, the first um, free and fair election in 1994, and then Mandela being made president. But what really inspired me, and I think because, you know, I was physically there at the time, was... Mandela's really amazing ability to to forgive and to forgive his captors and to be such a shining example of compassion and forgiveness. Um, you know, his story is amazing. He, I'm sure most people know the story, but, you know, he went into prison a, a very angry man, um, and obviously rightly so. Uh, and then he was in, in a lot of solitary confinement for, for many of the 27 years he was in prison. And he spent a lot of time, if you read, you know, his book, Along Walk to Freedom, spent a lot of time in, in meditation um, because he was kind of forced into it. And, and that really brought him to the realisation that, that he had the power to choose his response, right? He had the power to choose his own state of mind. You know, no matter his circumstances, no matter where he found himself, um, you know, he pretty much had to use self-hypnosis to, to gain a shift in his own perspective. And he chose not to be the victim. You know, he, he, he had this, this vision um, and he never really let go of that vision. And when he came out of prison, you know, that vision was, was, was made manifest. And, and one, of the, one of the things that, that he said, and I remember this clearly when he, when he came out of prison and we were kind of watching the, the, one of the, um, his first, uh, you know, when we came out and spoke to the people was, and this has always stuck with me, is that he said, you know, courage is not the absence of fear. Um, but it's really the, the triumph over it. And, and the brave man is not he who does not feel afraid, but he who conquers that fear. Mm. Um, you know, and he absolutely got it. As far as I can see, he, he, he got the power of the mind. He got that it's not about our circumstances. It's about 
the fact that we can choose who we want to be. And that's what I really want for, for every woman out there is to, is to know, um, you know, that she can, she can choose who she wants to be. Um, she can choose her responses to, um, to her life, no matter how difficult the circumstances are. So is A Long Walk to Freedom one of your favourite books? Yes. Yeah. Yes. It's certainly one it of is. mine. I remember reading that. And uh, when he came out to Australia soon after he was released, I um, I jigged school and I got into trouble because my teacher realised that I hadn't gone to school. And <laughs> But I remember seeing him uh, speak at the Opera House Steps. And oh, he, yeah, he was so inspiring. And um, when you walk into my apartment, the first thing you see is actually a little picture of Nelson Mandela. I thought you'd like that. Really? <laughs> yeah. It's wow. kind of like funked up uh, art piece of him. And yeah, uh, above wow. him is a picture of Prince as well. So, yes, there's something oh, about those, um, those men. Uh, but I something. totally get where you're coming from in regards to Nelson mm. Mandela. Mm. Yeah. Any other favourite books beautiful. that you have? Any other favorite books? Um, I love. Oh, I love the more recent one, "Becoming" by Michelle Obama. Oh yes, I, I love her. Um, just such an easy read, right? Um, I haven't read it. It's on my it's on my to read list. And uh, Barack Obama's books come out today as well. Oh, has he got a new one? He's got yeah. He's um, uh, it's just come out today. It's just a black and white uh, cover. I'll have to go and have a look. Because mm. um, there was the initial one. Um, which was, what was it? The Audacity of Hope. I've read that. I love that too. Um, that was more about his life, I think. But this one sounds interesting. Mm. Um, yeah, I actually read that book, Becoming by Michelle Obama, when we were in India. We, we lived in India for a year back in 2019 when um, my husband got posted there. What was, um, like, what was it like living in India? Oh, it was amazing. It was just such a such a, a beautiful, different, intoxicating, crazy experience. Um, <laughs> and I feel so blessed to have had a year. I would have loved to have stayed longer, but in some ways it was probably better that we didn't. Um, and whereabouts in India did you live? We lived in Bangalore. Oh, wow. Mm. Is that where the IT kind of Silicon Valley is? Yes, exactly. So uh. my husband was posted there. He went to open an office there and we oh, got to right. take the kids there for a year. It was beautiful, lovely yeah. experience. Yes. Um, so Michelle Obama's yeah. book and then anything else? Um, the other one that comes to mind, which uh, if anyone you know, knows or doesn't know Dr. Joe Dispenza, I love his Breaking the Habit of Being Yourself, um, which is very much along the lines of what I've been talking about, you know, around the unconscious mind and self-hypnosis. And if anyone's interested in that, he, you know, he's got lots of different books um, that you can read. I think that's one of actually one of the later ones. I've read most of them. But I love it because it's very practical. Um, but, yeah, I mean, um, I'm trying to think if there's any others. No, this really come to mind at the moment. I've read so many over the years. I love reading. Yeah. Books are life. Mm. How about songs that them. make you happy? Songs that make me happy. Um, well, I, I love music. I actually use I, I use music, music in my meditation every day. Um, and I, I use music to completely change my state of mind. So if, if I ever find myself in a funk, um, mm. just feeling, you know, flat or in a funk or, or you know, just irritable, I find that if I, if I put on the right music, it can completely shift my state of mind. Um, I love, oh, I love um, the one that the kids always laugh that I put on if I'm feeling low is I love um, Titanium by David Guetta and Sia. I don't know if you know that song. It's I brilliant. know Sia, but I haven't heard of the other guy. 
Mm. Oh, he's just a DJ. So he actually, he writes, I think, the music. And I think, you know, his music is fantastic. But he often he features, you know, different artists. Um, but she also, it's it's a, just a very empowering song about how she's titanium and she can't really be, mm. she's bulletproof, she can't be touched. Um, but I also love um, another one that really gets me going is um, is U2. My yes. husband and I both love U2's Beautiful Day. And that was our <laughs> wedding song. Yes, I was doing an egg collection today with one of the nurses at City Fertility and uh, she was telling us a story about when she met Bono at a bar and uh, oh, wow. how awesome he was and how grateful he was that she bought him a beer or a drink that, and, and she um, told him that she was a nurse and then he ended up shouting her and her mate some uh, cruise for three days somewhere random. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, so that was Beautiful. the U2 story of the day. So, yeah, I love yeah. U2 as well. Yeah. yeah. I actually, we met Bono when we, my husband and I, um, we worked on super yachts for three years. Remember I said to you in the beginning that mm. I took a few years out and that was when I had all that in- introspection time and decided to study acupuncture. But we were working on a super yacht just as crew um, and he came with the edge and he actually came to, and his wife, to look at a boat next door. And we literally bumped into them as we were walking uh, off the, the passerelle of the boat. Uh, and he was, we were just, my husband is, is, is an absolute groupie of you two. Yeah. And we were chatting to him for ages and ages. And we've got this beautiful photograph with oh, wow. him and his wife at the edge of us. But he was just so humble and so lovely. And where, um, where was that? Set the scene. That was in Joanna Pound, just near Antibes in the south of France. Oh, of course. Mm. <laughs> so he was, <laughs> he, he was coming to look at a boat next door, a big super yacht. Um, and we just happened to be in the right place at the right time. It was lovely to meet him, I must say. Mm. And how about your dream collaboration or collaborations? Do you have any? Dream collaborations. Um, you know who I love is Brene Brown, who I'm sure you know. Mm. Um, the social worker on steroids. <laughs> yes, exactly. The researcher. She, um, you know, I just love her teachings about shame and vulnerability and, and, and about courage. And I suppose, God, I would, I would love to do a collaboration with her, um, you know, and, and offer, you know, th- things around empowering women with mindset shifts and, and strategies. Um, because I think she, she gives such a beautiful shift in perspective, but helping people to actually really shift, um, you know, what's holding them back is, is really important too. So, God, I'd love to tap into her audience and, you know, there's people that are, that are ready for change. I just think she's amazing. I love, love her stuff, love her work. Yeah, I remember reading one of her books on a, a flight from Philadelphia to New York and it was the worst flight I've ever taken in my absolute whole life. Um, and, yeah, the, the plane couldn't land in New York because the weather was so oh. bad, so it was circling and circling oh. and circling and the pilot uh, said to us, if we can't make this, then we're going to have to go back to Philadelphia. And I, um, I, I was reading her book and I managed to finish the whole book because the flight was so long. But it was uh, every time I think of Brene Brown, I think of that flight. And but I, did, I did, yeah, did get through Ugh. it thanks to Brene Brown. <laughs> yeah. Mm, beautiful. Um, you were daring greatly. Yes, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I remember some of the lessons from that book. I can't remember the title of the book though because she's got a few of them. Um, she's got so many. Yeah, yeah. I need does. to. I need to find that book again. Anyway, thanks, Brene mm. Brown. Um, mm. My last question to you: top tips for becoming a kick-ass hypnotherapist, Louise. Okay, so yeah, if if hypnotherapy is something that 
that you want to do that you're interested in or that you already are uh, you know my and, and I, I certainly am always learning and I'm I'm um, certainly not an absolute expert in in anything but the things that I have found to be um, you know most useful about I've learned the most over the years that I've I've been a therapist is number one is really to take the time to to really really listen um, you know we 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 often, and I used to do this in the beginning a lot, is kind of, you know, jump in straight away and start to make assumptions because we think we know what we want to chase. But often when we really take the time to listen, and this was something that I, I was never really a good listener before I studied psychotherapy, um, is to really, really listen in your first session, take a lot of time to listen because you'll often hear things that you don't, um, you know, you wouldn't always hear. So that's the first thing. Um, second thing would be to say, you know, use your training because we, we learn things in a certain way. Um, but, to, you know, to go with the flow, like don't be too rigid. Because in the beginning, I remember I was quite rigid around the techniques and the tools and the strategies that we've been given and the way that we were taught. Um, and then I wouldn't get the results I was looking for. And everything kind of really started to change when I started to go with my intuition more. Um, you know, because you start to hear things that you wouldn't normally hear or go after things that you wouldn't normally go after. And that can really be life changing for people. Um, I'm a big believer that when, as women in particular, we have quite a strong intuition and don't be afraid to, to use that. Um, the third thing would be to say to find a style of hypnotherapy that suits, you know, I trained in clinical hypnotherapy, but that's really morphed into my own style over the years. Um, you know, clinical hypnotherapy is quite, um, quite structured and masculine in its approach. Um, and when I say about masculine, it's, it's, it's very much around, um, it's, it's, it's it's just very structured, um, and and I would say you know each different therapist will find their own style, and they therefore will attract the, some of the kind of people that suit that style. Um, number four would be to say to keep studying and adding tools to your toolbox. Like never never stop learning, um, because your learning and transformation will always be your clients. You know, learning and transformation. And like I said, I'm the eternal studier. It is so like true about that, isn't it? The more you learn mm. and um, you're not only benefit, benefiting benefiting for yourself, but also mm. you can kind of transfer that and uh, recommend things to other people, including patients. I, I find that a huge thing. And that's the power mm. of reading books as well, I find. Definitely. Definitely, because we're constantly, you know, and, and even it might be like like you were saying, Tash, you know, you ask that that right question in in your, you know, your intake questionnaire and that might just prompt someone to start thinking, right? You know, some might start thinking differently and that could be life-changing for them. Maybe it's as simple as, as the small things, but I just think that, um, yeah, to keep to keep learning is really, really important. Keep adding to your toolbox. Um, and then the last thing is to not pack too many, too many clients into one day or one week or one month because I made this mistake quite early on. I, I got quite busy in my practice pretty quickly. When I was in one to one, and I and I and I nearly burnt out. Um, and I, you know, it's you'll know this as a as a healthcare worker, as a practitioner, um, that it's intense work, um, and it's beautiful work, and it's it's meaningful work. But especially with hypnotherapy rather than talk therapy, it can it can really take a lot out of you. So we all need to take time out to focus on self care and to fill up our own cup because we can't give to other people. Um, you know, if we don't, if we don't get back to ourselves. So 
I can totally relate to that one. If I see uh, probably more than seven or eight patients in a day, I will Mm. feel completely worn out by the end of the day. So (laughs) I I make an effort to not see patients more than more than that number. Um, because yeah, you, you, you do want to be able to have some time between patients to reflect on the case and to reflect on, on what you've heard and, and to, um, take it all in. And I think, you know, this whole thing about jam packing lots of patients into your day, as many as you possibly can is completely overrated and probably quite unhealthy and really doesn't do anyone any favors, the patient, your secretary, yourself, Really, no one. Um, so I think that mm. last point for me really, yep, yep. totally can understand mm. that one. Yeah, you can relate for mm. sure. Yeah. Well, Louise, thank you so much. Um, I, I think I need to do more hypnotherapy now. Oh, such a pleasure. It's been so <laughs> lovely talking to you. It really has. Thank you, Louise. I hope you've enjoyed this episode with Louise Jeffrey and that it's demystified the world of hypnotherapy for you. Share this episode with someone if you think it will help them. Please subscribe to the Fanny Mechanic channel and if you haven't already, hop over and give the show a fantastic rating. Shoot me a message on Instagram, Dr. Tash Fanny Mechanic, and join the Fanny Mechanic podcast group on Facebook. Let me know of any topics you'd like to hear, call people like an interview, or books for us to read and share. Until next time, stay fanny-tabulous. Fanny Tabulous.